Hey, what's happening, guys? New episode of Eastman's Elevated here. So today on the podcast, I have on my buddy, Coulter Fosdick. And so Coulter came out to the house and brought his kids out. And, and uh, so we were able to hang out and, and have dinner together and then sit out on the back deck and do a recording. And Coulter's just a great guy. I've been hunting with him the last few seasons and, and been on quite a few adventure hunts with him. And he, he's just a diehard bow hunter. He's he's always trying to evolve and improve his skills, and he's always trying to learn as much as he can. And, and then he's a great companion for these hunts, as he always keeps a positive attitude and, and, and just goes for it nonstop. And so he's a great guest to have on the podcast. Uh, you guys are going to enjoy it. Uh, today's sponsor for today's show is Bloodsport. So Bloodsport's building um, arrows and broadheads, and their arrows... Um, they have great arrows. They have a, a great weight tolerance. They have a great straightness tolerance, and, and then they've got good components and, and they shoot real well. And so I've been impressed with their arrows. I used them last season and they did well for me. And then, and then their broadheads, they're building these grave digger broadheads. And I am just super impressed by their broadheads. Um, you know, I started using these things and, and I've had nothing but success with these things. They build a, they build a expandable, uh, hybrid. It's a fixed expandable hybrid that has uh, an inch fixed to it and then an inch and seven eighths expandable that comes out. So it's actually four blades. Uh, this thing does so much trauma to, to animals when you shoot them. They don't go far. Um, you know, every animal I've hit ha- has died quickly. Like that axis deer I shot in Hawaii, and I actually shot three of them and a couple goats, but they none of them made it very far. But that axis buck I shot, he made it maybe five steps before he tipped over backwards. And so you hit them right, they don't go far. And if you do get a less than perfect shot, you've got such a huge cutting diameter and so much blade surface that you, you have a higher percentage chance of recovering that animal. And and so uh, they're super aerodynamic. They fly really well. They also make a, a two blade and they make some other brands too. I've only used the two blade and the four blade. Um but their two blade is done right by me as well. And I like their two blade because it's the most aerodynamic broadhead out there. It's got two blades that open to an inch and seven eighths that close inside the ferrule. And so you get no wind drag, no wind drift with these things. And so, you know, on the open prairies, like hunting for antelope or, or even hunting for mule deer, um, they just do wonders. And so I've shot an antelope and a mule deer with them and both of them didn't make it far. So super impressed by their two blades as well. So, uh, thanks for blood sport for sponsoring the podcast they're making some great products out there and and i'm just in love with their broadheads um over there at eastman so we're still running the promo code for the podcast so if you go on eastman's hunting journal um go in there and and select a subscription put in the the promo code elevated 617 uh you can get a subscription for 20 dollars, and they'll even throw in a an elk call if you pay shipping and handling and that 20 dollars covers both magazines for a year and so that's 12 issues for the entire year and and like i told you guys before we're us us uh, pro staff writers or us field writers, we're just pouring our heart and soul into the articles that we write, trying to get the the best information out there for Western hunting. And I'm I'm constantly thinking of, of new ideas that I can write about and, and new theories and and things that are that are going to help you guys be more successful in the field for for trophy critters. And and so it, it's a great magazine, a great subscription. So if you get a chance, go on there and, and subscribe to the Eastman's Hunting Journal. And, so with that, let's get this podcast started. Um, me and Coulter Fosdick, East, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. 
All right, it's summertime. I got my buddy Coulter over here. Um, we brought the kids over, and uh, we're sitting out on the deck. A little rain coming in, so we're undercover, but we wanted to record a podcast. I've been wanting to do one with Coulter for a while. Me and Coulter started hunting oh, a few years ago. Coulter's just a diehard bow-only guy, and, and uh, so, so we met up, and we started going on these adventures together, and we've been to Arizona hunting coos three times. We've been to Nevada hunting high country mule deer. We've been to... Uh, we've been hunting elk quite a bit, and so just thought I'd, I'd get them on here, and, and uh, today's podcast is going to be about creating more opportunities, and so, um, you know, as always, it's going to be a free-flowing podcast, so we never know where the conversation's going to lead, but what I want to talk about is just gaining those opportunities, gaining those stocks, because when me and culture are together, we're always talking about, you know, how many stocks did we get per day, how many stocks did we get per two or per three days. If we can just do that again, we'll be able to harvest one. But it it just seems like bow hunting is so tough and you make you, you make these stocks on animals, but it, it it's never a sure deal. So um, it seems like you fail a lot, even on a high percentage stock. And so you got to get a bunch of them to be successful. But uh, uh, thanks for being on today, Colter. Yeah, thanks for having me here, Brian. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, glad to be on. Um, been a fan listening to you coming up on the podcast game and uh yeah should have a lot of fun yeah for sure so we're sitting out on my deck summertime looking at the mountains and like i say a little rainstorm coming in but i don't think it'll affect us so if you hear us scrambling because of lightning in the middle of the podcast we might have to to redo it inside or pick up inside but i think we'll be okay today but um so yeah you you drew another nevada tag this year you lucky dog you so you're headed back to nevada this time you're headed back to do a solo trip yeah no it's uh it's gonna be exciting i uh you know i can't say that uh, i have a lot of experience in there you know i've only had five or six hunting days in there and uh zero scouting days except for i guess the last two years ago when i drew the tag with you and uh, buddy ryan uh, you know we got in there a day early and start checking out bucks a day early but um, yeah no i kind of owe the spot to you as far as uh, having a good mm-hmm. high country spot to go slip into and just have uh, you know, excellent odds for sure so uh, yeah looking forward to going in there and uh, um yeah it's gonna test myself doing it by myself and uh, you know it's definitely a, a tough hunt that uh, doesn't come easy it's uh you know there's not not going back to the truck to take a break or uh, rethink the spot you're, you're totally committed and yeah well you should be dialed on that spot i mean like you say five six days hunting i think we spent i think it was seven days total but i could be wrong but that spot is dialed isn't it so we go i learned the spot and then um we had these guys uh, put in culture and ryan put in and then we were able to go in there as a group it's just so fun when you can share these adventure hunts with friends and and bring them in on it and, and uh you hunted really hard through that hunt you went for it you sent it uh but, but we're pretty dialed on that spot, and so the way I went in the first time was the long way through this trail and over all these peaks, and then after I found this spot, and it's good all over through there. It was good up the backside that we were climbing up, just right out of the truck. Within a mile of the truck, we probably saw, what, 30, 40 bucks, because we went up the night before season, like you said, and we started to make this ascent, and we had to go straight up three to four thousand vertical feet but it was only a couple three miles in there or something so we got about halfway up and it started getting dark and so we found a flat spot made our camp but um we probably saw at 30 40 bucks from that position didn't we yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, we saw uh, <clears throat> quite a bit going in, and uh, yeah, the next morning when we woke up at our camp spot, we had a, a good advantage and started seeing the bucks out there growing in the, the early early sun. And uh, yeah, it just seemed like uh, seemed like they were just everywhere. You know, mm -hmm. it was, uh, it's definitely a, a nice spot. Yeah, but they're not easy, right? You yeah. had to go for it, yeah. and so. Then we, we made it up over top the mountain to this spot I wanted to camp. And it's a really safe spot. We rode out some good lightning storms in there. We remember we had a couple good oh, ones in there. Oh, yeah. You actually rode one out on the top of the mountain, um, that that one back basin that we, that we hunted a bunch. And you hunted it quite a bit as I stayed in that bowl we were in where camp was. There was a, a good buck in there I was chasing. and So you went over the top quite a bit into this i call it like the secret base and I, we don't even have a name for it i don't yeah. but the, you know the one i'm talking about over the top yeah, right just a little nice little fold in there yep and and either was it me and you that rode out a lightning storm the one day and we dropped down in and then i remember you rode out the worst one by yourself up on top because i rode it out in the bottom of that drainage and it was pretty gnarly where i was at yeah no that was uh yeah you're always got your eyes up to the sky watching the watching the storms and the clouds and trying to figure out how much time you got and you know if you uh if you need to stay put or if you need to go for it or if you need to drop or you know like it's uh it gets it whole, adds a whole nother element you know it's uh if you don't have uh, rattlesnakes or grizzly bears to look for you have you know storms to keep your eyes out for and uh, you know it would be a uh, be a horrible situation to get snapped up there and you know not to have anybody know where you're at or oh you know, man so, so yeah it's definitely a definitely a, a danger for sure to keep away from yeah, so you're right. You start to become part weatherman. You start to read the way the clouds kind of move over, and you're taking you're taking tabs on it every day. Uh, how the storms roll through, and you know you'll see a storm way off in the distance and see if it you know if it comes and hits you or if it doesn't, and kind of how they move through. And so you're always trying to read the storms and how bad's this one going to be? Do I got to drop down now, or where can I ride this out at? And I I was doing a podcast with uh, Colton Conrad. And he had a couple buddies that were actually struck by lightning. Oh, wow. Yeah, they slept up on a ridge, and it came in that night. And I hit one of them, or maybe it hit the ground around them, but came through them. Oh, they wow. got a good jolt. So, yeah, no, it's definitely something to look out for. Like you say, it's always something. I guess that's why it's adventure hunting and why it's so fun, too. It's you just, like, it's getting back to that that raw being a human, like, you are in charge. Like, we're so safe in today's day and age. And sure, car wrecks happen and, and things happen. But, you know, you've got this home and this shelter, vehicles to travel around. And in everyday life really feels pretty safe. But when you go out there and you're in the wilderness and you, you do run into grizzly bears, and grizzly bears really like you. They seem to find you about everywhere you go and everywhere you camp. You've been on a couple solo trips where you've had them roll through. Yeah, no, they, they seem to to bump into me somehow. I've been dubbed a grizzly magnet a few times. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I've, I've, I've got uh, you know, collections of photos and uh, stories to tell that are, uh, are, are fun. Yeah, so so what was the what was the sketchiest one? Did you have to shoot like in the air at one when you were sheep hunting that time? Yeah, so I drew a, a U sheep tag here uh, in a local unit here in southwestern Montana and uh, had backpacked in a uh, day before season and uh, camped up high and found some ewes and lambs uh, the very opening day and was just uh, glassing them, just keep my eyes on there, kind of in a spot that just wasn't huntable at all and uh, I happened to notice that they were all, uh, all had their heads focused in the same direction, which, you know, was kind of weird because they were all, uh, you know, looking in different directions, you know, for, for dangers, I guess, but so anyways, I thought maybe somebody was going to be 
coming through on horseback or something. I was, you know, sitting there on my butt behind a tripod, just casual glass in there in the morning. And, um, a couple minutes passed by, and I heard some large thuds and looked up this real steep hill above me. And about 40 yards, had this uh, grizzly bear sow and cub uh, running down the hill at me full blast. They, uh, they didn't know I was there. They were just, you know, passing through country, and uh, I happened to be right, you know, right there in their path. So, yeah, scrambled up off the ground, just uh, all, you know, just lightning fast instincts off the ground. Pulled the revolver that I was carrying at the time and cranked a shot in the ground, you know, about 30 yards in front of her as she was, you know, running in my direction. Oh man! Had that uh, that little cub uh, spinning around, and he was, you know, between me and the sow, and I was uh, scrambling for cover and. Had the hammer cock for another shot, and uh, it was a little hairy situation. Luckily, she, uh, luckily she just never locked on me, and uh, you know she was just kind of stunned by that thunderous sound of that revolver cracking off up there in that, that quiet, uh, that quiet drainage. And uh, so yeah, they, she, uh, the cub went back to her, and they skirted around me and, and left, and she was woofing. I uh, got a couple pictures of her down the hill. But, mm-hmm. but yeah. Make your heart go? Yeah, I know. I uh, sat there on the hill and just, uh, you know, my life belt flashed in front of my eyes. You know, this was like, holy crap, what, you know, I could have uh, died up here. You know, nobody nobody knows where I'm at. You know, this is before I got a, you know, a satellite communicator. Or, you know, I uh, parked on one side of the range and had, you know, hiked up a drainage and over a pass and over the cross, you know, across two headed you know, other drainages and uh, was nowhere close to my truck. So, yeah, search and rescue is up there looking. No that, way, just find some bones a few years later. Yeah, they'd be a little confused at where to look at, for sure. But, right. Uh, um, well, yeah, and it's, um, in, in grizzly bears, most of the time, they behave themselves. But that inside 100 yards or inside 50 yards that you were in and with the cub, that's where it gets sketchy. That's where they get that fight or flight. And then especially when you got the cub in between you, and they're lightning quick. A grizzly bear can run at 40 miles an hour you don't have much time to think or you, like you say, all you do is you react. And, yeah. and that first shot into the ground was a good one. I, um, I, I don't think a warning shot's a bad deal when you're that close. I think that sound kind of scares them off. And I, the only thing I've ever had to shoot at, well, we had a grizzly bear, I guess, Pat and I had like my first day hunting in Montana where we run across, um, we thought it was a black bear up in a tree when we saw it. It came um, charging down the tree and it just came skidding down the whole tree breaking branches and it got to like 15 feet from the bottom and leaped off the tree and came right at us and Pat had his pistol and shot and and hit above the thing and it stopped it and then mom got up and so that was like a two-year-old grizzly cub and then mom got up and kind of backed us into the timber she never charged us or anything but I think those those shots kind of scare them too you know spook them and make them realize that no I don't want to fight here I want to flight but Inside that hundred yards, that's where it gets dangerous on those things. Yeah, no, and I'd I'd say that I've been inside a hundred of a, a few others, and that went down a little differently. You know, the the other ones that were able to you know get downwind for me, or you know took off, or uh, you know I had one curious one come check me out, but I was able to keep distance away from them, and, mm-hmm. you know, not have to pull a pistol out on them. But yeah, they're they all act a little differently, and that was actually the only sow and cub scenario I ran into. You know, all the other bears have been just single bears. Um, yeah, just just natural reaction. You know, you always carry uh, some type of protection around here mm-hmm. in the, the Grizzly Bear Mountains, either spray or a handgun. And my choice was a handgun, and I'm glad it makes the noise that it does. Because you know, if I would have had a spray, you have to get a little bit closer. <laughs> you have to just wait on it until yeah. it comes. I've carried bear spray for years. Um, 
just because it's lighter, you know, and I trust it. I should probably carry two cans so you got a backup. But yeah, I know that um, Todd Orr that got attacked across the valley, um, he sprayed that bear coming into him. And I think they just run in so fast that a lot of times they've run through that fog. But I think you just got to try to, you know, not that he did anything wrong, not that you could do anything different in that scenario. But I think you just have to sit with your bear spray and just hold your ground and yell at that thing and try to make noise. And when it comes, you wait till it gets right there, and then you're spraying down and in front of it the whole way, so you just cake it in its face so it doesn't want to get you. And there was actually a study in Alaska that I read, um, and it's of all the bear encounters or all the bear attacks in Alaska. And it, it does polar bear, black bear, grizzly bear, and then they they split it off and they studied you know which ones had pistols, which ones had bear spray, and um, there's never been a fatality when using bear spray. It has the best percentage of survival. Um, where a pistol, a few of those guys have got eaten. You know where you have to be on your shot to make it count in there. But like you say, whatever you prefer, I don't think there's a wrong choice to make. I think a pistol makes a loud sound, and you've got something to stop that bear and put some bullets in them. And the way they make those auto loaders nowadays, they're pretty accurate. Where you think you could pepper that thing a couple times coming in. And at least stop him or, you know, he may knock you over, but, you know, he's going to die on top of you or go, go off and die somewhere. But, yeah, no, that's, um, it's, it's always an adventure in the wilderness. And, it, you know, it's part of what draws us to it, too. If it, if it was, you know, absolutely 100% safe, I don't think it'd be as much fun. But you just, um, it is safe. You just got to always keep your wits about you. Yeah. 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 So, like, yeah, get back to um, high country mule deer hunting. But, yeah, those storms, they're... They're, uh, they're definitely a, a danger. There's nothing, you can't put those things behind you and just pretend they're not there. But, you know, you have to, they're on your mind when you're up there. But, yeah, when you're getting, uh, check out some deer and, uh, you know, the storms are gone, you know, those, those, uh, those, those things pass. Yeah, they do. They never last for the entire day. It's always like they last for an hour or two and then they're gone or maybe sometimes not even a couple hours. I had... I had one gnarly one there in Nevada. Uh, I, I'm always talking about lightning on the podcast. It's, it sketches me out a little bit. And I'm fine with it, like around here, or around bear hunting, or even muley hunting. You know, you've almost got to face your fears. You can't let them control you, you know, as too. But I just try to be really smart and intelligent about it. I always have a lightning plan. Um, so, like, when we go in together, remember, we talk lightning plans. So it's like, you know, we set our camp in a safe spot. I don't camp on the ridge lines anymore. Just, you know, I, I camped one, um, I used to camp on top of those ridge lines at Colorado. I'd camp at 12.6 and Wyoming, I'd camp at 10.11. And the ridge lines are where you find those flat spots, but they're just lightning magnets. And when you've got a storm come in at night and it's booming, and as you know, the storms in the high country are just a touch different. Like you're right up in the clouds, you're in the storm and they're touching down. And when you have a hundred strikes within a half mile that are click booms, you know, that dang near blow out your eardrums pretty soon you get pretty aware of lightning and where you're at but i think it's important to always have a lightning plan so camping in a safe spot and then you know i have a lightning plan when we're hunting is you know where we're going to go downhill and where we're going to ride out the storm and and a lot of times you know even if my camp's a little sketchy you know i've got a plan for the middle of the night to drop down off and ride a storm out in the bottom if it gets super gnarly but um yeah that's a it's a real danger up there and especially that nevada is so much lightning in there and we got we got a what would we get two or three good storms in there good bangers yeah no there was uh yeah it seemed like every day <laughs> yeah there was you know, at least a thread every day maybe yeah, there was more than i remember yeah and then um 
like I say, you wrote out the worst one by yourself. Um, that Nevada too, like the my first time in there in that spot, or actually it's my second time hunting Nevada, but my first time in this mountain range that we're talking about. Um, I had a couple times, like when I was hiking in, and I've had this in Colorado too, where all of a sudden it just starts to get foggy on the peaks and starts to cloud in. And the first lightning strike is almost right above you where you don't have time to plan for it. So guys got to be aware of that too, that those storms can form over those mountains and the first lightning strikes can be right over and on top of your range that you're on. Uh, but a lot of times, like you say, we're playing weatherman and watching them come in and trying to play the storms. Yeah, that's a lot of uh, those ones that sneak up on you are, are definitely to watch out for also. Yes. I've, I've seen some of those quiet storms roll in and uh, they don't make any noise until they get right on top of you. I'll let you know it for sure. Yep. And so, you know, you being a bow-only guy and me being a bow-only guy, you know, we talk and, and it's it's about getting opportunities and chances. Like, uh, I don't just have one chance in a mule deer a year and kill them. Like, sometimes it happens that way for me, but for the most part, I have to fail a couple times, or they, they just got such keen wits and uh, uh, such good instincts that, that, you know, a lot of times you're moving in and the wind will swirl or a buck you didn't see bust you or something will go haywire to where you, you need multiple chances to get it done. So how many stocks did you get that year we were in there when you killed that buck? Well, um, before I before I killed the buck, I had another stock that actually played out pretty well. I was able to find a buck first thing in the morning and watch him to his first bed, his second bed, and you know, his third bed, and had good wind by the time we got to his third bed. This was the second day in there. And I was able to uh, sneak down and play the wind right and get into, uh, you know, get in the bow range. He actually uh, popped up in through the rocks, uh, kind of surprised me, thought he was bedded still, and uh, made my last little, little uh, distance down there to him. Popped up in the rocks right in front of me, about ten yards away, and looked right at me. So you thought he was down below you, yeah. bedded, and then you rolled in on him and made an approach, and he got up out of his bed and moved up and at you in the trees, right? Yeah, exactly. So I was coming down this uh, real rocky point using these big uh, rocky boulders to kind of keep myself hidden. At, and he was uh, bedded underneath a you know, prominent tree that was off that that spine ridge, and so I was kind of using that tree as a landmark and coming down the rocky. The rocky ridge, just you know, boulder by boulder, just picking myself through there, and I, you know, got to where I could see the tree that you know I knew he was bedded under last, and you know, zapped it with a range finder about 70 yards out, and I just kind of kept sliding down there to him, and then, you know, just out of nowhere, he just popped up right in the rocks right in front of me, just just jumped up in there and started eating. Did he know you were there? He, uh, you know, he looked, he jumped up in there, he looked right at me, and then he turned, up, turned and grabbed uh, some leaves off whatever kind of bush was behind him there and you know at that time I was able to get an arrow on the bow and he uh, looked right at me again and had some you know some vegetation hanging out of his mouth and turned back for another bite and I drew my bow back and let one rip into him and uh, you know he's point blank and uh, you know range finding that tree that I knew he was under and he just popped up in front of me and I just uh, you know again just reacted and you know, or kind of already had my bow set for point blank type range, you know, 20 pin, you know, was set or whatever. And so I just laid the pin on him, let him have it. And he turned and bolted off that rock and uh, pulled the binoculars up and he, uh, you know, he, he ran across the top of that basin and uh, didn't look hurt at all. So I went down there where he was, which wasn't too far away, and 
arrow was laying right there in the bush, and I could tell immediately it just wasn't a good hit. Just uh, hit him high, you know, right below the spine, had some like some backstrap beat on the fletchings, like absolutely no vital blood at all. And, uh, yeah, sick to my stomach, you know, had a you know a pretty good stock that played out, and um, you know just didn't, didn't completely pan out. You know, just didn't account for a, a point blank shot, a ten yard shot. You know, a guy practices twenty to sixty or seventy. Or, you know, a lot of 40s or whatever, but you don't, don't really practice shooting 3Ds a lot at 10 yards, and, you know, just hitting just a touch high. and uh, um, 10 yards and down below you, too, was it? Yeah, slight, slight downhill, you know, I, don't, I, mean, I guess 10 yards, I mean, it really wasn't, you know, wasn't a measurable <laughs> distance at all, you know, I probably could have, uh, I could have spit on if I wanted to. Yeah, so then that buck got the name, the Holy Buck, and we ended up seeing him the rest of the hunt, and he wasn't hurt, like you yeah. said. He ended up surviving and uh, was feeding out and through there. And so, yeah, it was a non-lethal hit. Yeah, and we were able to see him up and feeding. I think uh, two days later, uh, Ryan had, had put some eyes on him. He had a little black hole in the side of his body there below his spine. But he was uh, up and feeding and was doing good. Made me feel a whole lot better about about not recovering him. But, you know, I had to, had a good, you know, good, uh, good stock. You know, it was my first stock. and went in there and was able to thread an arrow in the, in the buck with this just didn't get in the right spot, so yeah, it was the uh, first stock there, and then I, uh, you know, I hunted, uh, I think, the next day, which would have been the third day, I don't think I, honestly, I don't think I got a stock, had some had some bucks that I played on, but just didn't have the, the right setup, and it dropped down. And, you know, so. it, it's got to be high percentage, right, and yeah. so... Even though we didn't get any stocks, we're sitting above bucks and watching bucks all day long and trying to bet them in the right spots and trying to get them in a good location where we can make a play with a good win. But um, you're just you're sitting above them and you want to get stocks and you want to get opportunities, but you can't be reckless. Like you want a planned high percentage, you know, uh, a, a deliberate stock that you make down on them that you have a good chance of killing them. So no stock day three. Did you get to stalk any buck before you killed your buck? Uh, any other bucks besides that one? No. So you got two stalks yeah, on that hunt. Yeah, two stalks, two shots. Well, gosh, that doesn't make me feel too good. <laughs> I think I got three or four on that hunt, at least on that big buck that I was chasing. Um, that buck just had my number. He was hanging on the, the Lee Windy side there. God, I made a couple plays for that thing and just could not quite get him right. Yeah. No, um, those things are smart. They're, they're in their territory. We're just there trying to... Trying to catch them when they're slipping in, in between spots and you know, in the, in the vulnerable areas where they give themselves up. But I know. Well, and I had that buck had winded me a couple times and I'd wait, you know, our, uh, our you know, our standard uh, protocol is to watch these bucks, let them bed, and then even let them bed a second time. And by then it's mid afternoon and, and the, that hot summer sun has that thermals just pulling uphill but the thermals were fighting the directionals on this hillside where I was hunting them. And so you thought you had consistent wind and you'd look at the wind and everything was going uphill. Um, and then you'd get over there and it just swirl a little bit. And I think I got, I think I got winded twice over there on that buck in mid afternoon trying to make a play. But I remember the last stock I made, I, I betted him right in the morning and I thought I'm going to play on him right now while the thermals are coming downhill before they change. And so I came below them and almost got same elevation of them and just coming over and I can just see the buck's horns and they're right there and I'm getting ranges and he's like 40 yards getting ready for him to stand and this two point up the hill another 70 80 yards or something picks me off up there and then starts blowing at me up there 
and all the bucks stand up and there's no shot and then bolts out. But that was my last stock on that thing. Close encounter for sure. Oh man. You within forty of the buck that you've been chasing after for days. Yeah, but you ended up killing a really nice buck. I would did he go twenty nine inches wide? Yeah, nice four point. And so we went down to the low vantage point that day. And it was me and you. And we got down on the vantage point. We saw a handful of bucks down there, maybe six or seven bucks down there. And there was a couple just right on the line of being shooters. And then we saw this wide buck, you know, and, and you liked the wide buck and said, man, I'd shoot that thing. But it was a go for it scenario. I mean, we were probably, it's hard to put mileage on it from camp but we were probably a couple miles below camp down there and, and then lost maybe a thousand feet elevation 1500 feet elevation something like that yeah. and so sitting on that vantage point we spotted those bucks and watched them that morning and then we bedded the wide buck that you liked right and then you went for it and it was it was you had to drop another 1500 at least and then gain another couple thousand to come up and around this thing it was a big go for it yeah i dropped down off the off the vantage hit the bottom and start climbing up and you just know what you know what general direction you last seen them in and you're just uh, you know, just picking your way up the mountain trying to be you know, trying to be quiet by the wind keep your eyes open and uh, you know, use their last position as a reference and uh, yeah i was able to get up there where we uh they, they actually kind of fed over from the opposite drainage over the top of the ridge and kind of revealed themselves and there, i think there's about four or five of them hanging off together and you know, they were uh Definitely, uh, you know, weren't the biggest ones we've been seeing, but it you know, looked like there have been some shooters. And, you know, I was just sick for getting after, you know, I get respectable bucks. So it looked like there, you know, was at least one in that bunch. So There was a tall one, too, wasn't there? Yeah, you know, I've actually got some, uh, i actually got some pictures of them bedded in their second bed from when I first seen them. And uh, there's, a, there's one in there, I don't think he's real wide, but he had some real deep forks on him. by four also but, yep but uh good looking buck but um so yeah i got up to where i had seen him last and you know t didn't see him pretty typical and started glassing around and found him in a, in a new bed and it's not my phone this time <laughs> it's usually my phone that makes noise when i'm doing these i always forget to turn the volume off but yeah so uh saw him in a second bed major play over there and then you got up there and relocated them, right? Yep, was able to find them again in their, uh, what, I guess it would have been their second second bed of the morning. And, uh, you know, I, uh, you know, kind of worked my way in as, as close as I could at that point and kind of got pinned in some cliffs. It was up pretty high. And, uh, you know, I just started playing my, my options, you know. The, like you said, it was kind of mid-after, you know, noonish, maybe just before noonish. And, uh, you know, the wind's definitely moving up the canyons. And, um, you know, these guys had like a cliff that was right above them, so I could kind of tell that the wind was blowing up against the cliff and it was just kind of, you know, turbulent, just kind of all over the place. So I, I knew coming down from below them was uh, not, in, not in the cards. So I uh, crossed back over the, the back side of the ridge um, completely out of sight and just gained a bunch of country, got in front of them, and I could tell just by their habits and what they were doing that they're going to, you know, move down the drainage or in that same general direction so i kind of just hooked around and got up in front of them and cut them off and really cliffy area started just peeking down through some cliffs and you know not finding them and uh, you know new strategy i started using i started taking uh, pictures of the terrain from the vantage point before i go across and 
and go on my stock. Oh, that that's way, such a good tip. That way, when I get on the other side of the drainage, I can pull my camera out and, like, all right, we're this tree, this rock, and try to figure out. So, yeah, I've taken a couple pictures of the terrain before I went after the deer. And then, so then when I got out in front of them, I had my camera out and was trying to figure out, you know, what shoot to go down or, you know, what where I was. It always looks so different when you get over there. Yeah, so looking down on it, looking at my camera, I was still, you know, just absolutely confused. Had no idea where I was at on the, on the picture. You know? Sounds like, about I, right. I think, you know, so, but I was able to use, you know, like, process of elimination, and all right, these rocks are, you know, probably these rocks, and, you know, so I started slipping back down, and, you know, I, I knew it was kind of in front of them, and um, I climbed up in this really weird, rocky, sphere type thing. It was like you climbed up into it and you were just on top of it. You know? Rock castle or yeah, something. Or like spire. A, yeah, rock yeah. spire. I climbed up on top of it and uh, started peeking around and I looked down and there's bucks right below me. Those, you know, since I had gone out of sight and tried to cut them off, those bucks got up out of their second bed and started feeding and uh, you know, luckily I made the right move and kind of got out in front of them and they were kind of fed into a, a long finger cliff face that, you know, they couldn't really, I'm sure they can probably just fed against it and probably would have moved down. I don't think they would have, you know, climbed across it or anything. Mm -hmm. but, so they hit this uh, rock cliff and they were just feeding up against it. And I was in that little rock spire looking down and had, the, you know, one of the smaller bucks at like 11 yards right below me. And, um, you know, uh, was after something a little bit better, kind of glassed down a little bit further down there. I can see just kind of butts of these deer up against the cliff kind of feeding and could, uh, Definitely one of them stood out, so I just, you know, picked him and, uh, you know, range find his butt. He was in bow range, you know, like 23 yards, you know, when I, when I chose him. And, uh, Top pin. But, yeah, he was, uh, you know, couldn't see his vitals, just had his butt sticking out, and I can kind of stick my head over and kind of see him. But, uh, so, yeah, I just had to kind of patiently wait there, and, um, you know, the wind was blowing up, you know, it was, it was moving up, thermals were moving up, but they were kind of, you know, blowing around the rocks and that spire that I was in, those cliffs, and, you know, I was kind of getting scared that eventually that, you know, something might blow, you know, they might, might, uh, catch my wind or whatever, so, but luckily I just hang in there, hung tough, and that buck finally came into 17 yards where I can, you know, get a good vital shot on him, and, uh, and I ranged him, and, uh, made a 20-yard pin shot on him, and, you know, straight, you know, uh, straight downhill, basically, uh -huh. pretty big, pretty big angle, so that the hole was, you know, pretty high up in the shoulder, but yeah, sent an arrow through him, and he ran 70 yards, and just crashed up, and, you know, so I uh, felt real good, you know, I was up there in that little rock spire, and, you know, just was able to see him die right there before my eyes, so it was cool, I had ditched my pack up up top, so I uh, went back, and retrieved my pack, and um, once I got to my pack, I, you know, was playing Leatherman, and could see storms coming in, and <laughs> just like, oh, great, you know, it's probably one o'clock in the afternoon, just shot a buck, and it's kind of warm, sun's out, and potential storms rolling in, so grabbed my backpack and slid back down there, and um, when I was walking up to the buck, those other bucks that were with him were standing there like 40, 50 yards looking at me like, what the heck just when happened? You're, when you're tagged out, they'll stand around, won't yeah, they? Or standing right there, you know, definitely could have had a, you know, uh, another shot if there was a, you know, if I didn't make the first one count or whatever, but yeah, so they all, they all bursted off after I just walked through them. And that's a dream to be able to shoot a buck off a cliff, too. That's what we all dream about, you know, hunting yeah. mule deer. Yeah, no, it was, uh, you, know, and it's, you know, I've shot another deer at a steep angle before, and, uh, you know, even practicing, you know, when you let one go and you see how high it goes, you kind of 
get scared for a second. Mm-hmm. Cringe, and but that angle just always takes out the other side. Oh, it does. It will get opposite long, and uh, you know when he get it passed through. So you know when he went to run, he broke the arrow off inside of him. And, you know, it, just, it destroyed him. He was down pretty quick. Mm-hmm. But, uh, so yeah, I slid down there and uh, got to him and set the tripod up and you know picked out my. Picked up my shot. and got a couple shots of them. You yeah, know. hit the timer and run behind him. Yeah, Ten-second timer, get there, run behind him. And, yeah, you know, I, I always, played that game. You know, I always try to get a handful. I guess I don't get too carried away. You know, I always get, like, six to 12 decent photos. And, mm-hmm. you know, at least one of them will be decent, and the other ones will hate or whatever. But. Oh, good field shot means the world, too. The more time you can take on those things. I think I take 50 to 100 probably nowadays. Yeah, no, it's... it's uh, I'm gonna, I'm probably be taking more here in the future, I'm sure. But um, yeah, the field shots are are what's it for me. I definitely you know be able to sit there at the computer or uh, you know wherever and be able to, to check out that shot, and it just sends you right back in the zone, right you know right where you were when, mm-hmm. you, when you shot that thing. And it's, uh, you know it's it's just as good as the horns for me. Just having that photo just it's, uh, helps me live the hunt. Oh, me too. I'm with you. So. Um, yeah, no, absolutely. And I remembered I had a miss the day before. Um, so I had forgotten about that. But remember, we all three of us went up to that top canyon on the other side. And we glassed way across there as far as we could see. And it had to be two, three miles across there. And we saw those two really good bucks. And so I hemmed and hawed forever. And I'd seen bucks over there the year before. And so I made a run for those bucks the day before you killed that buck. Yep. Um, and I, I missed one of those bucks. So there was two shooters in the group, one that was 200 inch typical that had these deep forks. It was a really good one. And then there was a three point. It was almost bigger than that 200 inch typical. He had a bigger body, just as big a rack and this bladed third time. And I mean, he was a probably 180 inch three point. I, I figured I'd shoot either one and I made a, made a play on them to the trees where they were at. And they were gone, and then I was able to spot that big three in an avalanche shoot. And I snuck in, and I had him dead to rights. And I could see his horns, and he was bedded there. And as soon as he was going to stand, I was going to shoot him. I remember I was range-finding his horns, just like I had OCD, just over and over and over. And it kept telling me whatever it was. I, I It wasn't too far of a shot. It was like a 40, 50-yard shot, something like that. But I, I kept hitting it, kept giving me a range. And I don't. my rangefinder never picked up the horns. It was shooting through the horns and hitting the tree behind him. So when he stood up, I should have range-finded him again because he had no idea I was there. But I just threw back. I had my pin already rolled, threw back, and then I sent one straight over his back and straight into the tree. And then finally figured out, you know, I ranged the tree and figured the tree was the range that I was getting, not the horns, you know. So, yeah, I did have a miss the day before. And then I, I came down and I was coming back to camp and we knew where some other bucks were. And I came right over the top and they were all feeding down below me. And I... I passed on a decent four point down there. I was just looking for a little bit better buck, but I, I did have a chance where I could have got a redemption shot, but he was just a smaller four. But yeah, I did get a miss on that hunt. Remember, I think we all, didn't we all get a shot? Did Ryan get a shot? I don't know if Ryan got a shot or not. I can't remember on that sticker buck. I thought he got a shot where he didn't have a good range or something. Maybe I thought he did, but anyways, yeah, um, yeah that was so cool to see you kill that buck. So then, you had um, you were a long ways away from camp when you had that buck down, and then you had to make the track, the track that night back to camp. Yeah, no, I uh, uh, basically quartered the deer out, and, uh, boned him out, right? You know, I, I actually was in the sun, and I 
wanted to get me in the shade. So I okay. basically quartered them out and then ran the quarters over into the cliffs, you know, where I could get into the shade. So I just ran the quarters, you know, quarter by the, you know, by the each and then got over there and did all my work in the shade. So mm -hmm. I, uh, you know, laid them on some rocks and uh, got to cutting all the meat off the bone and just dropping them in bags. So yeah, I boned, boned them out after I quartered them just to, so I can get out of the, you know, the waist high uh, brush and out of the direct sun and uh, a little cooler spot. So, so yeah, I loaded the whole deer up in the backpack and uh, dropped elevation. Yeah, I just, uh, it, was, it was tough. I uh, dropped, dropped elevation, had to drop, or actually gain another, I don't know, 500, 700 feet or something to get back on that, on that ridge, on the lowest part of that ridge. I Probably even all, more so, yeah. yeah. I don't know, it's all so, deceiving when you get down in, in that hole, but, so yeah, after I, after I got the buck loaded, dropped all the way down there, and then had to, had to come back up and back up on the ridge, and, you know, it was starting to get dark, so, you know, I was... Have a lot of weight on my back. I was, you know, the pull out was tough after you know going down. It's always a little tougher than coming up. So, drop down and start, you know, thick nasty brush and you know, just jungle down there. The yeah, nothing's easy in that thing. Yeah. So that made made the you know I was probably hiking forty yards at a time and crashing on my butt trying to get up that hill and get up on top of the ridge and um, sunset got dark and um, you know started picking myself across the ridge and actually got into, you know, I was in, in the dark with the headlamp on and actually got basically cliffed out where I just couldn't go anywhere else. I had to take my backpack off and tie some rope on there and drop the backpack down through some cliffs. And it's tough to navigate in the daytime, but then in the dark when you're navigating, especially that cliffy side hill that we were coming across and we're hunting gnarly country it's part of the reason why we don't see people in there but at the same time going at dark with your headlamp and a full deer on your back that gets sketchy quick yeah no i didn't take the exact same path i went down and the path i went down was just you know a, a go for it for the deer so it's not yep. necessarily a, you know a trail or anything so yeah it was you know trailless country and trying to come out of it was pretty tough i uh, you know i uh, actually tripped and fell on those cliffs and pretty good oh that's right i had actually uh tripped and fell on my bow and, you know cut a couple strands of my bow oh that's, that's right so i remember if that. i had if i had killed a deer I, you know my bow probably would have exploded on the next shot but uh so yeah it was a little rough going i uh finally made it down to the bottom of the drainage that we were camped in and uh, it was probably i was probably two miles away still at least we say two miles but that's a long ways back up there to camp and quite a bit of elevation too yeah so i just completely exerted, just tired, you know, as can possibly be. So I'm hiking, you know, up the drainage, so I'm probably uh, 60 yards at a time and crashing on my butt, you know, about to basically pass out and just tired. I think it's like midnight now. I killed my deer at like one and, you know, dropped all elevation, climbed it, tripped in the rocks, you know. Let's, rode, rode my backpack through there. And, oh, and so much heat through, throughout the day, too, as you're stalking that buck and killing that buck and then the butchering process is all in that direct, hot Nevada sun, too. Oh, yeah. So, so, yeah, I yeah, think, you know, almost made back to camp. I ended up, uh, you know, I just I just went as long as I could, just you know, absolutely pushing myself to the limits and uh, ended up hanging my meat up in the trees down below camp and uh, made the rest of the pool a little lighter pack. And, yeah, I made it, uh, I was able, you guys started a fire, so I was able to, you know, see the fire down there. It was a little hope, somewhere to, somewhere, a little beacon to, to mm -hmm. you know, 
you could see the on. you could see the fire up there. Yeah, and it, you know it seemed closer than it was. So it seemed like you know no matter how how much I hiked, it just never got any closer. But yeah, ended up making up there. And it was uh, definitely good to see you guys. And uh, man, I was in, I was in bad shape. I don't know if I've ever pushed myself you know that hard physically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, was, I was determined and wanted it bad enough. But yeah, the right thing to do. You know, looking back on it, told myself before now is that probably should have. Uh, Taking the deer back in a couple trips, you know, it was a you get out there a ways away from camp, and you just don't want to don't want to have to get back. You just want to get knocked out and uh, make the you know make the trip and get it done. And uh, so I, I tried it. It was just a tough country and it beat me up. And uh, you know, it's just a story and a lesson and just gives mm-hmm. me something to you know to set my sights for. And you know, next year this season here when I go in and hopefully you know, hopefully put an arrow through one, I'll. Uh, Maybe go about packing my meat around the country a little bit differently. Maybe take a couple little relay trips to, you know, so I'm not so so tough on myself, I guess. Oh, know. it it is smarter too to to make two loads with those things, or you know, split some of the loads up and and just just be safe. I mean, what's another what's another day onto the hunt? What's another couple days of, of enjoying the wilderness? And you can hang your meat, and your meat's fine. You know, you hang it in the shade where you got air all the way around it. You know, not a whole bunch in in each bag, and and your meat's gonna be fine. You know, so yeah, no, I think um, a guy's got to play it smarter. I mean, you can't put yourself at risk like that to to get a deer out and, and do it full. And I I about killed myself. I left that trip, and then I killed a buck in Colorado. Um, and, and my buddy Dan got got sick on the hunt. You know, exertion sickness, just getting in there above thirteen thousand, and um, you know, he. He uh he got sick where you know I got worried about him that he wasn't going to be able to make it out. I I killed a deer in there. I killed a really nice buck, but then I was back you know multiple miles. It, it wasn't quite twenty, but it definitely over ten. You know probably around fifteen miles back and in two big twelve thirteen thousand foot peaks that you had to come over ridges and take that thing. And same thing, yeah. you know it's like um. I should have just taken a half load and then taken another half load, and, and Dan couldn't help. He had to just get himself out of there. He was, you know, he was throwing up, couldn't keep water down, couldn't keep food down. He was sick as all get out. I mean, there was no putting any meat on his back. So I just stuck the whole buck and my camp on my back and packed it out of there and made it out of there. And I kept thinking, all right, I'm just going to get it to the top of the hill, and then once I get it to the top of the hill, I'm going to hang half of it, and then I'll make it to the truck, and I'll come back and grab half but then I get to the top of the hill and it's like, I just did this big 1500 vertical feet climb to the top of the hill. Well, now it's just downhill. So I can carry it down to the bottom, you know, and then I get down to the bottom and I go, all I got left is that one climb up there. And then I, then it's all downhill to the truck. So I just, I just kept bringing it out, but it got unsafe towards the end too, where that wasn't the right choice. And towards the end, I could hardly get myself back up with all the weight on my back. Um, a guy's a guy's really got to be smart in those positions and and just enjoy the experience and not try to kill yourself getting them out. Not do one load out and, and same thing with those elk. Those elk are heavy, but if you kill the bull you want, now make three trips back in. And that's why we train so hard and why we're in good shape is to make multiple trips. But just that heavy, heavy weight over a hundred pound packs are dangerous, you know, and they're dangerous because of balance and trying to keep your footing and. And sliding, but I mean that's going to be when a guy hurts himself. I mean, you think it's a lightning storm or a grizzly bear? It's probably going to be falling with too much weight, and then and then what do you do back there? You know? Yeah, no, just uh, like I said, just push myself to the limit. You know, just physically, absolutely, you know, no matter, no matter. I don't know, you know, I don't know if I can train any harder for it. 
back and just tortured myself. Mm-hmm. I wasn't honestly, I wasn't eating the calories I should have been. I had, you know, basically had packed my food in weight increments and you know to keep got the weight down. I think I was pound pound and a half a day or something like that, and a lot of light stuff and jerky and crackers and tuna and nuts. And, uh, just wasn't able to wasn't able to keep the calories down and then. And then uh, just exerting myself, you know, I just, uh, just pushed myself to limits where I was throwing up and had absolutely no water in my system and ran out of water and, you know, just, just uh, was a horrible shape, got mm-hmm. back to camp and it's good to see you guys there next to the fire. And, and I uh, definitely puked outside the tent a couple times that night and just woke up just absolutely sick, had, mm-hmm. to, had to lay in there for another, you know, an hour after daybreak or after the sun came up or whatever and, yeah, we went down and got to the meet and got back to camp and decided what we're going to do for the rest of the hunt. Yep, packed the buck out, got the buck out for sure, had to get the meat out. Um, yeah, no, that was a great hunt. When you put everything into a hunt, it seems that like a, the memories or it seems like it means more to you in the end, you know, but but that's a, that's a cool deal. And I've made myself exhaustion sickness too, um, you know, running a lot of these trail races and things, um, taking care of your body when you're on that is a big part of it too, making sure you got the water coming in and the calories coming in. Uh, when you start working on a calorie deficit, you're not working with enough water and you're putting that exertion out. And I made myself sick too. I remember, you know, when I was um, a little bit younger back in, um, oh, it was in that Papoose and then over to the Squaw Creeks way over there, way in the hill in there and, and uh, started chasing some elk and I was looking for a six point bull and there was just, there was like a couple hundred of them and I was hunting with my rifle and, and I kept, catching up to the herd and I just five point five point five point I just kept chasing the herd and chasing the herd up there and uh you know you're running half the time and you're way up on top of 10,000 feet I made myself sick up there exhaustion sickness like you say where I had to lay down and I was throwing up could hardly make it back to camp but you know what happens you push yourself past your limits but um no you gave it all you had on that hunt that was uh, a long ways to go for that buck and, and super exertion to pack that thing out but yeah it can happen to any one of us but that is the reason why you train so hard in the off season and you push yourself to build up your, your threshold of, of how far you can go and how many miles you can do. You know, I definitely think that helps, you know, yeah. Yeah, the better shape you can be in, the more it helps. But yeah, in, in some cases, um, I think too, it's just, um, going at it with a, with an intelligent approach too. Like you say, making two trips with that buck, you wouldn't have made yourself sick. It's just, you stick a hundred plus pounds on your back and try to make it, you know, up and over a couple big 1,500 foot climbs and back to camp and who knows how many miles, you know, that'll, that'll get anybody. Yeah, no, it's a lesson learned. You know, you learn something new. Every mm-hmm. time you go out, it'll make you a little bit better or make you a little bit smarter. For sure. Well, and, and you've been training harder since then, too. You've been yeah. running with me quite a bit. Yeah. I, uh, every year coming out of the you know, winter and having cabin fever, I always you know, get hot for running and you know, try to stick with it as much as possible. It's definitely good exercise to get you ready for you know, most hunts. And, yep, and hiking. Bear season always gets us in good shape. Yeah. We're always doing a bunch of miles bear season. Yeah, bear season's good. This year I was able to pack my uh, three-year-old around the backpack quite a bit. She's probably 35 pounds and you know, 10 pound Kelty backpack to carry around in. So it was, you know, good yep, I just saw her running around the yard here as she ran back that way. I'm sure she's hanging with my yeah. daughter's. But yeah, doing three or four miles with a kid on your back, you know, I think that was probably just about as good of a training as I can get, packing, you know, like 
the type of weight I would be going into the mountains with, you know, mm -hmm. 42, 48 pounds or whatever, and, uh, you know, hiking around and just burning, burning some, burning some, uh, some calories and getting in shape, but, yeah, yeah, looking forward to getting in there, and, um, you know, I don't know a lot of that country, so I'll probably, you know, go in and go where the, the one water source that I know is that's, you know, clean and don't have yeah. to pump and just kind of work from there. I would like to travel a little further uh, south in the range and check out some new spots and just kind of, you know, add to the puzzle pieces of the, you know, country that we can hunt up there and, you know, be able to share some information with you. So when we, when we draw the tag or whatever, we'll have some new spots. But, so yeah, I look forward to getting in there. It's going to be fun. I, uh, it's, uh, it's going to be a good time. I wish, uh, wish you were able to go or, Nice to be able to bring somebody along with you, but it'll be a good time to reflect on life. And, you know, when you're in there by yourself, it's uh, you know, you're always, your mind always runs, and you don't have anybody to bounce anything off of. So you know, all the ideas and thoughts and you know, everything is just it's all yours. You know? Oh, solo trip, yeah, solo trips are challenging, aren't they? Um, they, but they you do you learn a lot about yourself and uh, get to do some thinking and things. And um, no, you'll do great in there. And the, the spots you know are really good. That camp spot's really good. You know where bucks are hanging. You can explore farther. So you'll have a good hunt in there. But you, you started to have a lot of success with your bow. And it seems like success with the bow, even for me, like I felt like I was ready for consistent success with my bow. But then it comes a couple years after. Like you just got to keep putting in the work and, and keep improving your skill set on your, your shooting. But a, a big piece to that is finding animals and getting stocks on animals, giving yourself the opportunity. And so those muley hunts, like, um, you know, when we've both been on muley hunts where you don't find a shooter buck, but to put yourself in those places where you can find bucks, be watching them and getting plays. I mean, that's, that's really the key to it. And I know, you know, in those coos deer hunts that we've done, we've done it three times and hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again this year. Um, but I know down there for us, it's just a matter of finding bucks and getting stocks down there. You have to get stocks to kill one. And so, um, you know, we've averaged down there. We usually average, what, around 20 coos deer a day down there? Yeah, that's, that's pretty good. Pretty good guesstimate you know, around there. And, you know, uh, probably out of the, as their total deer numbers, you know, probably half of them are bucks and, you know, a decent amount or some, some good ones that are worth chasing after. Yeah, I was thinking like five a day would be bucks, but, you know, we're just both trying to think about it yeah. as we're talking. But yeah, I bet you we'd see 20 deer down there a day and I bet you five of them are bucks or maybe a couple more than that, like you say, that are smaller bucks. And then like you say, half of those are shooters. So couple couple shooter bucks per day were down there trying to make plays on and again those things are tough down there during the rut to keep track of and to get stocks on but that's the whole key to harvesting them is, is just getting stocks and getting plays so you know i think both me and you really live and die behind our glass like we live for animals in their feeding features when they're feeding morning and night and we glass during the middle of the day for bedded animals too but we're always looking for a master vantage point or, you know, a lot of times in that coos deer country, we're running a mobile vantage point and, and mule deer and elk too. But instead of being on a master vantage point, like we'll be on a master vantage point at first light, but pretty soon after 45 minutes, an hour of looking, we know what's kind of in and around there and sure something could pop out, and especially coos deer because they, they're the gray ghosts. They just hide no matter where you're going. They just disappear into thin air. But it seems like we spend about 45 minutes to an hour on that vantage point, and then we start moving. And we're working ridgelines 
popping over the top and we're glassing and we're kind of running a mobile vantage point until we get to another good lookout or another good point. Wouldn't you say that's kind of how we go about it? Yeah, no, we're uh, um, definitely on the move. And, uh, you know, especially in the rut when the, bo- the bucks are moving around, you know, searching for does and chasing does and rutting around. And, you know, there's, there's more movement going on than there would be in, you know, non-rut type seasons. So, yeah, getting those master vantage points and be able to look down the, the nooks and crannies and over a bunch of, you know, a bunch of country where you can see those things you know, moving around. You know, if you, you know, like you said, you got a good idea of what's in there, and you know, if you sit there for half an hour, forty-five minutes, and you've seen a couple and aren't seeing anymore, it's time to move on and see some more country, and uh, you know, just you know, create as many opportunities as possible. So yeah, if you just sat in the vantage point, and you, you know, a really good vantage point, and you're dedicated to glassing and picking it apart, you know, it's after that forty-five minute frame or whatever. We're seeing the same deer we've already seen. There's not any really new ones that are just going to pop up. Yeah, there might be a couple that are, you know, stashed away in a bush or something. But, yeah, it's time to move on and, uh, you know, uh, grab another vantage point and uh, search and try to find some opportunities. You know, we're trying to, you know, each morning and evening is a hunt for us. So, you know, we're counting days and hunts, you know. Every, every day is two hunts. And, you know, uh, you constantly run the numbers game in your head, you know, like, oh, man, I want to hunt without a stock and a whole day without a stock, and, you know, the numbers are stacked against me, and I need to, I need to turn those numbers over, so you're constantly just uh, trying to pick the country apart and just trying to make, make opportunities and, uh, you know, place yourself in the best position you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Well, and it, and it seems like, um, like it always feels good when you hit a master advantage and you come over the top. And you can just feel it. You can just see so many folds and different ridge lines and stuff. And you may glass over it, but it feels so good to sit down on your butt. And you tripod up the majority of the time. And I do, too, in Coos country. I'm always tripod up. You tripod for, for elk and mule deer, too. But um, tripod up and then just uh, pan around and really pick it apart. And, and usually within you know the first 15 minutes, 20 minutes, you see the majority of them, first 45 minutes, hour, you know, you've seen you've seen most of what you're gonna see. You know, something can always pop up, but but I know elk. You know, I don't. I run master vantage points when I used to hunt rifle season and late season quite a bit, and I will run master vantage points when hunting them. But you know, elk stick out like a sore thumb. They're bleach blonde, and you just see them. They're either there or they're not. So it seems like I get to a good vantage point. I may sit down and look for a little bit and listen for a little bit, but man, I hunt those things on the move. Like I'm constantly moving those ridge lines and then glassing new terrain and glassing new country and you know and, and it, it always pays to sit down and take 10, 15 minutes to pick it apart and really look at it, you know, in case something's bedded or you know there's something moving through, uh, you catch it better. but it seems like elk they, they you just you see them, you know and so I, I'm, I'm constantly on the move when hunting them like a mobile vantage point it seems like. Yeah, and I think it varies on terrain. For sure. Some terrains more open country, or some of them are deeper, tighter drainages, or just you know, you're not uh, available to as many vantage points. And, you know, an elk are, you know, they just seem like they're constantly moving around, or you know, they're never in the same spot every time. So, you know, they're, um, yeah, you have to move around and almost move with them, find them, and stick with them, and, uh, you know, keep the same rotation going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it just, it just possibly glass, you know, based on the, on the, you know, 
the steepness or how much foliage there is or whatever. But yeah, the grain of the country, how the country lays out to you and where you're sitting and how much you can see. And, and always, if you're sitting down and you're watching elk or a bull you want to kill, then you're definitely going to sit on that vantage point and watch him. But a lot of times, those elk move out of sight of you or where, you, where you're at, where you got to coyote the herd. It seems like I'm constantly coyoting the herd. And whether it's from sight or a lot of times it's from sound, too. You know, you see a bull and you, you know what he is and you know his bugle. Or sometimes you just hear him and just can hear a good bugle. Like you, you just keep trying to keep with him and just trying to get a look at him and just where is he at? You just want to locate him, but you got to keep moving and that can be deceiving too. So following him on the calls, I've messed up a lot or a handful of times that I can remember. So, you know, an elk, when they're transitioning, they're moving and covering country and you've got to move country at a pretty good clip to keep with them. So you can see them over the next rise, see them or catch up to them or be able to spot them. Um, but I've also had where I'm trying to close the gap and, and that bull sounds like he's close and then all of a sudden he sounds like he's far away. And what that bull's actually doing is turning his head, bugling away from you, and it echoes off the far canyon wall. And it's like he's farther than he really is. And so I've ran down on top to try to catch a bull that I think's, you know, a, a few hundred yards, six, seven hundred yards away. And I come down right on top of him and he's right down below me, but he bugled against that wall. So that can be deceiving too. Yeah. No. I, I messed up a few times doing that. I know. Yeah. No, I, uh, you know, I guess, uh, you know, my most recent experience as far as killing an elk was, you know, basically coyote. You know, I went to a, got a vantage point in the morning where I could see over a decent amount of country and just started glassing it, you know, first before the sun, you know, in the dark and just, you know, start to find bodies able to see antler silhouettes in the dark and you know just and then when the sun came up I just you know I had a couple different bunches I was looking over and um, you know one bunch went somewhere where I couldn't get to and the other bunch you know started moving in the country where I could you know play in and so I uh, just started following them and you know they, they move quick you gotta gotta keep up with them and um, you know just try to figure out what they're doing and just stay with them as long as you can see them or hear them you know you, you feel like you have a chance. Yep. Yep. Try to keep eyes on them or um, keep hearing them. And, and every time you hear them, you're trying to move closer to them. You're trying to close the gap. Like you say, coyote that hurt. But yeah, that was a heck of a nice bull you killed in there. Um, yeah. So so you did. You coyoted the herd and then you actually spotted him bedded the last time. Right. And then you were able to make a play. So he was transitioning from his from his feeding and then the lights came on and all of a sudden he's moving towards his bed. But they 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 always go four or five times farther than you think they do. Like, you'll see him disappear in a patch of timber, and you'll think that bull is right in there. Heck, he's five pieces of timber away from that. They move so far from their feeding to bedding. They like to move country, don't they? Yeah, no, when they're coming off their feeding source in the morning and moving up to coolies, I, uh, you know, said start, started following them, and uh, you know, after a while, I thought they were getting ready to bed down. I just kind of, you know, had that look to them. So I you know, occasionally have to lose sight of them so you can get the wind right or you know travel country right so you're not sticking out like a sore thumb. So I had to lose them a couple times, but I, you know, this one this one point I thought they were going to bed down and I you know dropped down into the coulee and you know snuck up to where I thought they were going to be and none of them were there. Glass <laughs> up and all around and there's nothing around. So you know you hike up to the next ridge and look across the, you know to the the very next ridge and they're just going over that ridge you know they just oh that sounds like you know, elk hunting. you know so you're you're just on their heels and thought they were getting 
ready to bed down, and so you take it slow and find out that they, you know, kicked it in the third year and they're on the second ridgeway for the end. So then you're trying to hightail it over, you know, and you know, get as close as you can and keep up with them without giving yourself away. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a fun way to hunt them. For sure. Oh, it is. Well, um, and I think the key is knowing when to slow down on that deal. And like I say, I've made a few mistakes where I've heard them bugle and echo off the canyon. I can remember two distinct good bulls that I messed up that way where I actually thought they were further and I thought, okay, it's time to go. I need to catch them again and get to the next ridge where I can see them. You know, or a lot of times I'm following them up a canyon and I can hear them bugling and and then I'm trying to get on the opposing hillside. I'm trying to glass them, just trying to locate them. I want to get eyes on them. If I know where a bull is, I can stalk and kill a bull. If I can see him, I can kill him. Um, but but just hearing them, you know, and moving in, I, I think the biggest thing with elk is knowing when to slow down. Because so there is a time to half jog after them or walk as fast as you can walk to make the next rise to be able to get your eyes on them. But you got to know when to slow down. And anytime you're coming up over a rise, that's a time to slow down, no matter if you think he's there or not. And, and I don't need to crawl up on a ridge line, you know, to, to sneak up on it. What I do is I just move really slowly and, and I'll actually bend down to where the ridge kind of hides me and I'll sneak up and then I'll just raise my head ever so slightly and then start glassing that ridge. But I, I just never charge and skyline myself on that ridge where they can see me or come over the top. But, you know, that, that ridge line assault, um, a guy's got to get really good at that. Because in bow hunting, you're constantly ridge line assault. Whether you're antelope, mule deer, coos deer, elk, it seems like you're always coming over a ridge line or a skyline to see if he's there or see where he's at, you know. And so that's a time that a guy's got to get really slow and, and really disciplined and looking out in front of them and glassing each little piece of a country and don't get in a hurry. But yeah, I, I really think that key for elk is knowing when to slow down. When you start getting close, then you're starting to, to, to make your feet quieter with each step and you really start to slow your roll down, you know, and, and then sometimes you slow your roll and you think he's right there like you did and you go, oh shit, he's a mile over that way, whatever it is, you know, and you, you, then you're back on the chase again, you know, and you slow down when you get way over there. But, um, yeah, that's elk hunting, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, and, uh, anytime that you try to move, when you, you know, when they have the opportunity to see it, they're going to see it. You, know, you just have to make all the right moves. You know, you just can't can't half-ass it and try to, you know, like try to get away with things. When you, if you think that, you know, you think to yourself, oh, "Am I going to get away with this?" You're probably not going to get away. Oh, with you're so right. No shortcuts, right? Yeah, no you can shortcuts. never take a shortcut if the conditions say that you need to crawl. You need to crawl. If they say that you need to belly crawl you need to belly crawl if you're gonna if you have to go through an opening and you go oh, i don't know you might see me there like you said he's gonna see you you know you you can't take any shortcuts you take shortcuts that's how you get busted and then you got to go try to find a different elk so i'm with you you've got to make the right moves all the way along and and never get reckless with your stock and and you know sometimes you look at a bull and he may be a hundred yards away and you you just need that little bit and you think god if i could just get around this one meadow i'd have him in range well, you can't. Like, you've got to just wait. You've got to wait for them to move to a better position. And I always think it's amazing, too, with elk, if you're patient and you coyote that herd, how a bull will actually put himself in a bad position if you don't just charge in and blow up the scenario and get too aggressive. So so when you're hunting elk, you do have to hunt them aggressive and keep with them, but you got to really pick and choose your time to go all in and try to kill that bull. You know, and if the conditions aren't right, you're better off to just hold off and just wait because he'll put himself in a bad position. And it may be, you know, in another 10 minutes, it may be, 
you know, middle of the day, it may, you may even have to wait till that evening till he feeds out again. But at least if you don't blow him up, you know he's there, and you're going to get your chance at him and your play at him and, and your chance to go all in, I think. Yeah, no, I think you're right there. They, uh, you know, eventually they're going to not bed up in the middle of the cows. You know, eventually they'll bed on the edge of the cows or 20 yards off the cows. Or, you know, they'll, they'll uh, eventually give themselves, you know, the wrong hand and you'll be able to slide in there. But, yeah, you just... Uh, Trying to stick close with them and trying to, you know, try to keep yourself, you know, you know, as close as you can, striking distance. Ooh, I like it. Yep. You know, when they make a mistake, you're ready just to ready to strike. You know, I've been, you, know, you see some of these these uh, how leopards and some of these cats hunt. You know, it's just, it's just like bow hunting. They're quiet, sneaky, and they're getting themselves into basically like lunging range. You know, their their range is as far as they can jump. So you know, these cats are sneaking into you know, lunging range, which is, I'm going to guess, you know, 10 yards or something, and, you know, they get in there, and once that deer puts its head down or comes around the bush, you're ready, they're, we're ready for them, you know, so it's, um, we're, we're, uh, we're learning from, from nature. Oh, right, those cats are the ultimate predators, aren't they? I mean, even your house cat, you watch it as a kitten, and it's probably a better hunter than I am, you know, just its instincts, what it's born with, like the way those things sneak through the grass, and the way they... They move so slow, like they, they realize or they don't realize they don't have a thought process about it. It's just instincts. They're just instinctually, they're good hunters. But you watch them and animals pick up on movement like we're talking about. And the way a cat moves through the grass, if you ever watch that, how they just barely move a foot and move a foot and slide their head. And, and when they're on something, they don't get too excited. There can be a bird right in front of them, you know. And they're just sitting in the grass crouched and they're just waiting for their chance to, to go all in and, and lunge or make a bolt at that thing. But they're so patient. Like you watch a cat hunt, they are patient hunters. They have far more patience than we have, you know. But yeah, they that is learning from nature, you know. Yeah. They're they're the ultimate predator. So sneaky those cats are. Yeah, no, they're they're uh, something to learn off of for sure. But, but yeah, there's uh, a lot of a lot of different ways to go about it. Yeah, Can you imagine if you had to get, well, you know, had to kill something with your teeth and claws. Oh my gosh, I'd starve to death. I yeah, think yeah, that's yeah. just amazing. I'd have to uh, pick a slow animal for sure. Find <laughs> uh, some sloths or something. <laughs> right. Well, um, and and those things, um, they're just so crazy too. Um, you know the 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 way they stalk and watching them as a predator, but just how patient they are, and that that's all just instincts built in um, over the years, but. Uh, you know, it, it'd be a total different world if, if, like, these mountain lions had a different attitude. Like, the mountain lions are really scared of humans, and I hear guys that tree them, and, you know, they growl at you in the tree, but they never come down and come at you. But if those things were hunting you in the woods, there isn't many guys that would be in the woods. If they were, like, uh, like like lions out on the savannah, you know, even even lions, I don't think, are hunting you all the time, but uh, that... That movie, like the Ghost in the Darkness, if cougars were out, then every time you walked in the mountains, they were stalking you and hunting you. That'd be a different world. Oh yeah, I'm sure they could. Uh, you know, they're already stealthy and sneaky as can be. But I'm sure they could run you right down and tear you apart pretty easily. Oh, if they knew what they're uh, what they were working with. Oh man, there's claws on that thing. You look at the claws on them. Um, and you've probably seen them dead. I know you saw Rob's and that, but their claws are like an inch and a half long, razor sharp. Like, one swipe of your midsection, they're going to spill all your guts out. Like, the, all they need is just one swipe. And, and you think of your house cat, you know, a house cat, when it gets torqued off or playing with it, 
and it lights you up or lights onto you, it can scratch the heck out of you, you know? A 12-pound house cat, uh, there's this uh, stupid show that I, I haven't seen it. My wife's like a cat's from hell or something like that. or It's, it's some stupid thing on TLC. Not that I... I watch it, but it's so funny. These 12-pound cats are, like, running the whole house and attacking their owners and stuff. And their owners are, like, fearful. You know, they're hiding in the bedrooms and, like, locking themselves in. And I've heard of people calling the cops because their cat won't let them out of their room or something. And that's just a 12-pound house cat. You imagine a 150-pound mountain lion? Oh, gosh. Yeah, those, those people are insane for even feeding those animals. <laughs> <laughs> right? right? to get their minds straight. But, yeah. No, they're... Uh, they're they're built for hunting. They're uh, a hunting animal. They're completely, you know, completely on top of the predator chain for sure. Yes. Well, and, and and dogs are impressive too. Wolves, how they hunt, and they hunt in a pack, and it's like the there's almost a game plan to the way they do it. But yeah, cats are just on another level. They're just so stealthy and so sneaky, and and live off mule deer and elk pretty much. I mean, stalking the same mule deer. That's why that's why those dang mule deer in Nevada are so tough to kill is because. They're used to dodging mountain lions, you know. They're looking every which way, you know, because they're used to having a mountain lion trying to jump off a rock and trying to get them down there. But that's what those deer have evolved from is is running from mountain lions. Yeah. Yep. And trying to trying to pick out mountain lions. So mountain lions are so sneaky the way they move through the grass and the way they stalk and the way they know movement, like we talked about. But those deer have gotten pretty good at picking them out. I mean, that's you know the um, gosh, there's that great saying. I wish I. Um, what, something like a, a lion wakes up every day chasing and a zebra. They, they, anyways, there's that really cool saying that, um, you know, zebra wakes up every day and has to run. A lion wakes up every day and has to run. And, you know, they chase down the, gosh, I can't even remember the dang saying. But it, it's just those deer have to be really good at picking out their predators. And like those axis deer that I was hunting in Hawaii, those things evolved from um, being chased by Bengal tigers in oh. India. And so, like, uh, tigers are the biggest cat out there. They're bigger than a lion. Can you imagine an 800-pound cat? But that's why those axis deer are so wily. You know, they're used to running from those things. Yeah, they have predators down there right now? No predators in Hawaii, but they do in India. India is where they originated from, and then they were transplanted to Hawaii. So in Hawaii, they have no predators uh, other than humans. So you think they're... To keep the same program, even though that the generations oh, ago yeah. they they haven't been hunted by tigers, but they're still programmed to to be super weary and you know, think something's after them all the time. Absolutely, yep, uh, yep, instincts, yep, in their DNA. That's what they originated from. And actually, the the antelope that we see out here, I wonder if we can. There's a couple. Is there? You already saw a couple. Yeah, we usually see some antelope right here around the house. It it looks like they put some cattle down here below us, but. Those antelope actually evolved from um, the American cheetah, so they are. That's why they can run so fast, is because they evolved to run away from the American cheetah. And the American cheetah actually isn't even related to the African cheetah. Uh, the American cheetah uh, died out and, and went ex in, uh, extinct, but the antelope survived and then evolved. But that's why an antelope can run sixty-five miles an hour and run faster than any predators. But even predators start to figure it out. And now these coyotes and wolves, like what they do is they chase them into fences. And so antelope, you know, they could never catch an antelope flat out, but pretty soon you run them into a barbed wire fence and they get balled up right in there. And then those wolves and those coyotes get a chance at them in there. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen, uh, when I was out nearby here, I had uh, seen some antelope running and for the coyote right on their tail. And then 
and he, he was chasing them, and then he stopped chasing, and there was another coyote staged up ahead, and he joined in. So it was like a relay. So, you know, the, oh, coyote, wow. the coyotes just went in fresh, and were chasing the same antelope. You know, they'd run at 100 yards, and there'd be another coyote waiting there, and that coyote would jump in and chase it, and run in 100 yards, and there's another coyote up there waiting. But you know, eventually that third coyote ran him through the fence and about had him. You know, I thought I was going to watch you know, National Geographic take down right there in front of me. Luckily, that antelope kicked it, and the deer was able to escape. But, I've yeah. seen a couple of them get um, gotten by coyotes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I'm not sure if it was injured before, but I I saw one that was, they were working in circles, you know, trying to get them. And I saw a wolf get one one time. Oh, and there's actually, uh, I think um, some of the, the, the dogs, like people's pets, have run them down before. The wire hairs are pretty quick and run them into a fence or something. Sure. I've heard of that happening, too. Huh. I haven't seen that. And then they're... They really get them, they get those fawns. And it's amazing how a 70-pound uh, antelope doe, how hard she'll protect her fawn trying to kick that coyote. And so I've seen that go down in the field where the coyote knows there's a baby there and they stash their babies in the grass for a couple weeks and they the babies don't move much until mom comes over to feed them. So they stay in the grass and the coyotes know they're there and trying to get on them. And that mom will come after them and then try to stomp them with their front feet. I've seen moose and elk try to do that too to coyotes and different dogs. Yeah, huh. yeah. As animals, they're always super. They're probably seem the most cautious about their young. You know, when, every time I have seen one that had a fresh one, you know, within a couple of days, you know, the next time I seen her, it, the fawn was gone. You know, mm-hmm. she like said stashes them, and um, I don't know if she keeps going back to them or what. But they go into hiding. Yes. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, they got to stash them, um, stash them from, from bears. Bears get a lot of fawns. I don't think they get a lot of antelope fawns, but probably like up in that range up there that we hunt. Yep. Um, I'm sure they get them up there. But black bear get, gets a lot of elk fawns and deer fawns. And I watched a black bear that had an elk fawn in its mouth one time walking across an opening. It was actually during season. I tried to go harvest that bear. He walked into a timber patch, and I think he ate that fawn. And then I caught him leaving the timber patch like an hour later. Made a play... Had them in bow range at one point, but didn't get a shot at them or whatever. But they love to eat those fawns in the springtime. And that's a that's a good tactic when you're hunting bears is to hunt them around where those elk are, are calving. Sure. Yeah, it'd been cool to take the bear that you saw just take a fawn just to, you know, full circle to life. <laughs> right? Put a, a circle of life on them. Right? And, oh, he was a giant chocolate, too. Yeah, just carrying a big old fawn in his mouth, you know, uh, or an elk calf in his okay. mouth. Yeah, carried it across this huge meadow and into this timber patch to go eat them, but found that elk calf. And then, so the the American cheetah, and then the other cool one that used to be here in North America is the short-faced bear. And the short-faced bear is actually bigger than the polar bear, just this giant bear. And they actually think that, that it stopped a lot of the people from crossing um, what not the, the Bering Street, but the Bering Sea land bridge, you know, when they when they came across to North America, that the short-faced bear was actually alive, but it, it was bigger than the polar bear. Um, but yeah, that would have been pretty wild to see if some of those predators would have made it. And then you can go back even farther to the, with the saber-toothed tiger that used to chase the mammoths. And they actually believe that the humans were alive and hunted mammoths. And mammoth is wild, you know, I think it's part of the elephant family, but I'm just, I'm I'm making stuff up at this point, but 
Um, they definitely look like an elephant. They've got a trunk and a big tusk and whatever, but those were giant animals. Can you imagine, like, being back in the day and trying to hunt those things with an atlatl? Yeah, those things would just squash you. Oh, my gosh. Try to get close enough where you can spear him. And I have you ever thrown an atlatl? I have not. Yeah, it's pretty wild. They're pretty accurate. They throw a spear pretty good, so it's like an extension of your hand, a stick that goes back, and it's got a notch on it that, that ca- catches the back end of the spear. And you get pretty good at them. They're just a short-range uh, weapon or whatever. And then once they invented the bow and arrow, um, you know, those guys were pretty good at using the bow and arrows. But I love finding the old uh, obsidian arrowheads around here, church arrowheads and things. Uh, but around here, in this country we're looking at, there was a lot of sheep eaters. So a lot of the Indians would, would kill and hunt the sheep. That's what they were known for. And, of course, the buffalo and everything else. But in the summertime, they'd go and they'd live up on the mountain. So... Like, like on that big spine up there that's behind my old house up there, I found a big tip up and through there in that big opening that's back and behind my old place there, um, up on top, but definitely hunt sheep up there. But um, yeah, I, I think the sheep meat eats so good, and they were in the mountains, and I think there was a bunch of them up and through there, so there was a lot of sheep eaters and in the canyon down there when we're finding those those broadheads, and, and not the ones where you're finding them like at camp where they're carving them out, but where you just find one single broadhead in the dirt. Like, I always think, well, that was probably hunting. Like, this this thing may have been shot at a sheep or even passed through a sheep. Who knows? Yeah, no, I, I'm, I'm still... I got my eyes peeled now after after seeing some of those things laying around and got my eyes peeled for checking out the Indian artifacts. It's pretty cool to, to see that you're, uh, you know, you're... And, I guess, I mean, I... I'm not native, but I mean, they're considered ancestors. Or like, oh, yeah. You know, these are guys before us, you know, maybe Absolutely. not they're related, but, you know, they were adapting to their life, and, uh, and it's, it's just cool to think that there is, you know, traditional native guys from around here. Oh, stuff. right, <laughs> living in teepees down in here, and yeah. depending on what we do tonight after we get done with this podcast, which we're getting close here, but we'll uh, either go for a run or shoot the bows or both, but... Um, I found a partial one down here off this bench on this private property and on this private that I've got permission to run or whatever. You can keep them down there. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I found them on this bench. And then right down below that is that fishing access. And there's a bunch of old teepee rings. And I think the archaeologist, um, I think they dug that site and found a bunch of okay. old artifacts down and through there. But yeah, I found one just down off this bench running the other day. So now I'm constantly looking at the ground as I'm running. And I haven't found another chip, haven't found another partial head or anything down there but you know you're just not looking at that much ground down there and now the grass is starting to get pretty high but right before you get off the bench down there would be where you can see the rocks and the dirt right there I mean, the guy might find one down in there yeah no as a as a hunter you're always trying to keep your eyes up you know looking for i know looking for stuff on the ridge or you know catching you know catching the game before they see you so yeah it's you know looking for you know sheds or you know arrowheads or yeah, looking at looking at yeah. the dirt, looking at your feet. Yeah, yeah looking at the dirt. Well, that's it. Well, you've trained yourself for so many years to look up, and, and that's a big part of being an effective hunter too. Is keeping your eyes on the horizon, keeping your eyes up as much as you can, and even when you're stalking too. Is when I'm stalking, like I look down and I kind of pick my route, but then I'm keeping my eyes up, and I may look down right before I set my foot down, but then my eyes are right back up looking, but. Yeah, that's a big key is trying to see animals before they see you. Animals pick up on movement so well, but I can't tell you how many times I've been busted. Where you, I mean, we all have. Where you're just walking through country, and, 
you spook out a buck or a bull that you'd be happy to kill, and you just spooked him because you didn't see him first. He saw you first. Yeah, you gotta slow down and take your time. You know, you know. Oh, I have a yeah. tough time doing that. Because I like to roll country, like I I like to pick and choose where I slow down, and then some places in in it's you know it's to my detriment, really. I mean, a lot of times where I'm moving too thick, too fast through country that has animals in it, where I should just slow down and hunt. But I I'm always like trying to get to that point or trying to get to this point, and I, you know I do good at slowing down, coming over ridge lines, slowing down when I think I'm getting close to that animal, but. I could see where I could slow down a little bit more in places, like still hunt my way through some stuff where I might bounce into an animal. Yeah, you, you mean like you say, you'll get set where you're like, all right, you'll make it to that advantage like in the last for the next half an hour, so you're, you know, a little, you know, you take off your sights off of what's in between you and that advantage if you get a little quick glass and you don't see anything in there, but yeah, there could be, there could be stuff in there, but you know, it, it's hard, you know, when you get on top of the advantage, you're really playing the game, you're really, you know, that's your, that's your best opportunity to see something and be able to figure out what he's doing, where his habits are, and you go after him. And, you know, just bumping from one place to the next. You're, yeah, you might bump him, but you know, the odds of you seeing him before he's seen you and you know, be able to slip down to him, you know, usually less likely if you're on the move. Yeah, well, and you roll through a lot of country and don't spook anything, too. You know, So a lot of times, if you'd still hunt your way through it, you never make it where you had to make it. You never get to where you got to be because you're too busy still hunting through empty country, looking at pine cones and rocks and stuff, you know? So it is a balance where you do have to roll country sometimes, and then you do have to slow down other times. I think it's just recognizing, you know, when you're in good country and when you're, you know, when it's game rich in there and you know you need to be slow and, and definitely, you know, like I've said over and over, coming over ridgelines, you know, even if you're in the worst country, anytime you're coming over a ridgeline and exposing new country, that's your time to really slow down and creep over the top and glass as you come over the top and try to catch that animal first. And then once you're able to kind of survey your surroundings, you know, and you go, okay, now I got to make it to the next one, then you can kind of beat feet. But, you know, you, you always need to be aware and keep your eyes up. Anything, any new exposure of country, you know, that's where you really need to pay attention. New fold country, whatever you know. At least a quick look over. At least stop and put the binos on top of the cam and just give a good glance over and, and go for it. Yeah, you run the cam deal too, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so what he's talking about is um, we stick our our bows. Let's see. So I stick my bow with my left hand and I hold up my bow and sometimes I'll even rest my bottom cam like against my thigh or against something and then we stick our binos on our top cam. And it just gives us a more of a stable pan around when we're glassing around, especially when we're hiking and hunting. Now, it's always better when you can sit down and put your elbows on your knees and get rock solid to look at something, or better yet, tripod up. But um, but when you're standing and hiking and hunting, to put your, your, your cam like that in your bow, it really does stabilize you quite a bit. Yeah, if I'm walking around and I pull my binoculars out of my bino bibby and just press them against my face, if I'm not resting the binoculars on you know, the cam on my bow or a tripod or sitting down, it's, I might as well just keep it in my binoculars. <laughs> I just, I just, you know, I just, for some reason, I just, you know, I can't hold a pair of binoculars one-handed, my, you know, and just glass effectively through them. I need to rest them on, like I said, you know, the mm -hmm. top cam of my bow. I need to sit down, put my elbows to my knees, or I need to pull my tripod out. You know, I just, I'm not a, a, a great off-hand uh, glass. Mm -hmm. Sit down on my butt or, you know, like I said, just a uh, quick off the cam deal a lot mm -hmm. more effective yep 
off the cam or you know, another, you can always set that bow against you too in two hands, but I'm like you. I like the off the cam. That's what I run to when I'm walking around, looking around. Yep. Yep, it helps quite a bit. Yeah, I remember uh, early on buying one of those little deals, little hooks you can put on your belt. So you can hook your bow oh, right. on your belt. I remember so those. hands free, but like I said, I can't, you know, two hands and nothing rests in the binos. For me, I just, I, it's just not very effective unless it's a elk standing out there. You know? Yep. Find something I don't know is there. Unless it's obvious. Yeah. Yep. For sure. Well, yeah, man. Um, super excited for you this season. That's going to be a fun Nevada hunt. We both got big seasons coming up. Um, man, it should be fun. We're, we're getting close now. I know you got your bow dialed in. We should probably go rip some arrows and see where we're at. Yeah, I'd like to, like to send some and, and uh, see what it's doing. Been shooting in my yard uh, 40, 40, 50 yards. And got the broadheads working and you know, making sure my broadheads points are in fact the same same spot you know i did that two months ago but you know it's, you're always just making sure that everything's just where it needs to be and that you know you have absolute confidence when you you know drive six to ten hours to go somewhere and on that you know that lucky draw tag that you're gonna make a good shot you know, yep that one shot what, what's gonna count and uh, you know and uh that one quiver of arrows, I mean, I've never gone through a quiver of arrows yet, but, you know, hopefully that one arrow is all i got to send. Absolutely. Yeah, well, it's putting in the work now. So, no, you got that thing ripping good. Well, let's go rip some arrows. Um, thanks a bunch for being on, Coulter. I yeah. really appreciate it, man. That was a fun conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hopefully it's uh, stuff you guys like to listen to. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and well, let's, uh, let's get you back on after you kill your big Nevada muley. Yeah, hopefully I'll get a good one. Yep, for sure. All right, thanks again. <laughs> All right, guys, that's a wrap. Well, uh, me and Coulter did not get struck by lightning. That's always a good thing. So uh, the storms held off and let us get a, a full recording in. And so um, really fun to sit down with him and, and talk bow hunting. I just always enjoy hanging out with that guy. So um, uh, again, our sponsor for today's show was Bloodsport. And Bloodsport's building uh, awesome arrows and great broadheads. Check out their, their four-blade chisel tip or their two-blade chisel tip. Super impressed by those. Um, also make sure to check out the Eastman's hunting journal, the promo code at the, if you go to Eastman's hunting journal website, um, the promo code is elevated 617, uh, get you both magazines for 20 bucks. Um, boy, and with that, uh, just got back from a scouting trip. You know, I, I didn't see quite what I was looking for in there. Um, just didn't see the numbers or the quality. And so, you know, it's almost better that way. I, I, it's just going to make me work harder, more scouting trips and just figure out this Idaho and figure out where the big ones are. And so I'm pumped. I, I just, uh, came home and started piling over maps and Google earth and, and I'm driven to be successful down there and going to make it happen. We're going to, we're going to try to capture it on film, which is going to be really cool. And so the pressure's on, I got to find some critters down there, but this is what I really enjoy getting ready for a hunt and, and all the preparation that goes into it. I, I've been trail running like a maniac and a, a bunch of heat runs and my legs are feeling good and now I got a, a couple backpack trips under my belt and, and uh, so, so I'm feeling good it's going to be an awesome season a bunch of fun hunts planned and, and going to try to do some some recordings on the hunt and, and just really excited at the direction and everything and um, one thing I am figuring out is my audio quality oh my gosh I embarrassed um, at <sighs> 
my last recording wasn't the best. I, man, oh man, like uh, I have all these presets and these settings and I actually use the same settings as I used to record this podcast, which I recorded the same day. Um, but, but just in different rooms and different voices, it picks up different. And, um, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't thrilled with my, with my last recording and some of the recordings I've had. And, and, you know, I, I am not only the, the podcast host, I am the sound guy as well. And so, um, you know, it's my responsibility to make sure that the audio is high quality and it always sounds good coming through the headphones and that's kind of the problem. And so, I, I need to sit back and I need to to re-listen to everything before I start the podcast. And, and also, it's just made me focus more and learn more about oh, my drivers on my computer and my settings and, and the programs I'm using. And it's just made me analyze everything. And I, I had a good buddy that, that reached out to me or a buddy that reached out to me that you know, asked me who my sound guy was and I, I told him it was me. And so anyways, he hooked me up with his sound guy of a, of a really high quality professional podcast. And so I was able to bounce ideas off him and, and kind of pick his brain of, of what's right in the world. And so, um, you know, you, you almost, I've, I've apologized for a recording in the past and I just feel like you can't apologize for the same thing twice. I, I just got to get it fixed. That's all there is to it. And so I, I'm really focused on sound quality right now and, and making the audio as, as best as I can make it. So, and so it doesn't drive you guys nuts inside your rig. And so I don't crash, crash this ship into the rocks. Like I just trying to get this podcast rolling and so focused on content and, you know, you know, I can make a million excuses of how busy I am and full-time job and scouting and hunting, but the, this podcast is a priority to me and, and making this thing high quality is a priority to me. So I'm just going to continually work at that. And I, I think I have everything dialed in. I think I've found my problems and where my shortcomings have been. And so, um, you know, it, it can always be an internet connection. It can always be somebody else's voice, but I, I've learned now how to, to break it up into multiple channels because I am always so loud on the podcast where my guests are quiet. And so I mess with gain. So it makes sense in my headphones. And then I get to the recording and it kind of is what it is. I'm able to fix it up a little bit, but I'm, I'm finally learning how to get it to multiple channels and all this techie geeky pod stuff, you know, recording stuff that isn't really interesting for the podcast. But right now that's my life is trying to figure that out and dial everything in. So I sure appreciate your guys' support and keeping with me and continually downloading these podcasts. And, uh, I am going to get this thing right. I promise you that. And, and, uh, so thanks for the, uh, support. Um, boy. And, and with that, uh, I'll just check in with you next week with another recording and we'll just keep this thing rolling. Uh, like I say, I got some good ones recorded, some good ones coming up and, and just super psyched at, at this journey and, and trying to get better at it. Um, so keep working hard. You guys season is right around the corner and I see your guys's posts, you know, getting in your, your workouts and your trail runs and everybody shooting their bow. And it's so exciting this time of year. And let's just keep that excitement rolling into season and, and let's all be successful and, and harvest some really nice animals. So, um, I'll check in with you guys next week.